should. You are an evil man. You should have left well enough alone. I should, I'm sure. I'm sorry. Yes, Adam. Miss Lord, I'm a worm. I can see that. And Miss Lord went back to writing on the board. We love it's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today and every time that you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. Today, we've got stories about princesses. We've got a story about becoming a bear, another tale about becoming a worm, and another tale about a debate that occurs without words. Sounds like a typical episode of the apple seed, right? Stories of all kinds coming at you this hour. And to introduce you to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, it's great to have you with me. Hey, Sam. It's good to be here. How are you? I'm I'm all right. I'm in the mood for a Simon Brooks story. Well, if you're in the mood, I've got some good news because I have one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's called The White Trout. And... Right. Uh, well, it's about a white trout. It's amazing how titles often <laughs> indicate right. some things. <laughs> um, but it it begins as kind of this this uh, lovely love story fairy tale yeah. between a princess and her betrothed. They're madly in love, but uh, before it can come to the the happily ever after, Uh-oh. the her betrothed is actually murdered. Dang, which is unfortunate. Um, pretty sad. You know, it wouldn't be a story if nothing awful happened, right? That is, yeah. Yeah. That is correct. Um, but she, in her grief, actually disappears. And around the same time, this white trout appears uh, nearby in this, I think it's a pond or a stream or something, but this white trout appears. And it's it's there for years and years until some evil soldiers, um, three of them, come into the village and they're kind of terrorizing the town, taking what they want and and, and doing whatever they want. And they hear about this, this fish they decide to catch it, and uh, I'm not going to give away the ending, but <laughs> but you know when you when you hear about that kind of stuff, I don't know about anybody else, but uh, I kind of want those people to get what's coming to them, you know, <laughs> right. which may not be like the most loving <laughs> approach to life, but have a hard time um, right. with that kind of stuff. Well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, two uh, 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 a boy and a girl in love, a horrible murder. Cruel soldiers, a magical white trout, sounds to me like an age-old fairy tale, right? You'd be right. And here we go. Simon Brooks with The White Trout. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. In the long-ago days, one wouldn't pick one's own husband or wife. One's father and mother would do that for you. Sometimes, if you were really lucky, you might actually like your spouse. But the princess I'm going to tell you about now, she loved her betrothed. And the prince, he loved her too. This was a match made in heaven. The princess lived in a white stone castle. Her favourite colour was white. She always wore white clothes. Her favourite metal was silver. She would wear silver bands around her waist, jewels bedecking them. She would wear silver rings on her fingers. She'd wear armbands, necklaces, all made of silver. She even had a silver band which held her hair back. 
her hair, which was as black as a raven's wing. The princess and the prince were to be married, but then something dreadful happened. The prince was murdered and thrown into the pond that sat in front of the castle. They searched for a week for the body of the prince, but could not find it. And the princess, having lost her one true love as she saw it, began to pine away. She stopped eating, and she grew thinner and thinner, and she stopped going out into the town, to the village, and then people stopped seeing her altogether. She vanished. But the day that she vanished, in the stream that came from that pond that was at the front of her castle, a white trout appeared. Nobody had ever seen a white trout before. The oldest man in the village. Well, uh, I've lived a long time and, and I've never seen a trout as white as this. No, I've seen rainbow trouts and striped trouts and trouts with many colours on them, but I've n never seen a trout as pure white as this. I say it must be fairy magic, and that this is our beloved princess. And so that became the common thought of that village, that the fairies had come and taken pity on the princess, and using the magic had turned her from the sad, sorrowful princess into this beautiful white trout. The white trout who seemed to be searching for something, searching for its lost love, waiting for its lost love to appear in that same stream. And years went by, and years went by, and that white trout stayed in that stream, next to the lake, swimming, swimming, as if it was searching for something or someone. It was there until the youngest girl in the village became the oldest woman in the village, and she grew. I remember when this fish first appeared, and here it is, still. No natural fish would have lasted that long. I say it is a fairy fish. And so the belief continued that this fish was indeed created by fairy magic, and that it was the princess of the castle. But then a sad, sorrowful day happened, when three brigands, three cruel soldiers appeared in that village. They were fleeing war in some far-off land, and these cruel men found homes for themselves in kicking other people out of their homes. It didn't take them long to hear about the legend of the white trout, and so the leader of these men the cruelest and most evil of all, he decided that he would go and fish for this white trout, which he did, and it didn't take him long to catch it. He carried the fish back to his home, to his billet, and threw it on a counter. He got the stove going, and as the flames grew higher and higher, he threw an iron skillet upon the flames, waited until it got hot, threw some oil onto the pan so that it hissed and sizzled and then threw the fish into the hot oil. And as it landed in the hot oil, it seemed to cry out, Oh, there you go, my precious. 
Uh, sing your pretty song. And the soldier cooked the fish and cooked the fish. And when he thought it should be done, he took his knife, scraped the fish and flipped it over. But instead of seeing brown scales and a clouded over eye, the fish was as white as it had been when he first put it in the pan, and its eyes seemed to be staring at him. Huh. Maybe I didn't cook it as long as I thought it did. And this time he cooked the other side of the fish twice as long as he cooked the first. And then using his knife he carefully flipped the fish again. And again, as it landed back in the fat, it cried out, Oh, another little song, how pretty it sings. But then he looked at the fish and saw that it, the other side had not browned either, and that the eye of the fish stared at him. Well, I'll cook this side. A second time for twice as long again. And then it will be done, whether it's browned or not. And so he cooked it for twice as long as he'd cooked the other side. And then he took the knife and stuck it into the fish. And this time the fish gave a scream so loud that he dropped the knife, dropped the pan and stepped back in horror. People in the village heard the scream and the scream sent shivers down their back. The fish fell into the flames, but where the fish had fallen arose a beautiful woman, wearing white. There were silver rings on her fingers and on her wrists and on her arms and around her neck, and there was a silver band that held her hair back, hair as black as a raven's wing. She stepped out of the flames and pointed at her arm, which was bleeding. Look what you have done, she said. Look what evilness you have cast upon me. I am cut, I am bleeding, and you have taken me from my duty. I didn't know, I didn't know. Who are you? Who do you think I am? I will turn you into a minnow if my true lovers pass me by. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know you was, you was on an errand. I didn't know you, were, you, you had some sort of duty. How was I supposed to know? You should. You are an evil man. You should have left well enough alone. I should. I'm sure. I'm sorry. What can I do to make it right? You shall mend your ways is what you will do. And you will throw me back into the stream where you found me. I can't do that. You'll drown. I will not drown. Throw me back. Save me. And if I have missed my one true love... I shall come back and I shall haunt you. I shall turn you into a minnow and I will hunt you down for as long as the sky is blue and grass remains green. But, but, but I can't throw you back in. You'll drown and I'll, I'll be... Throw me back in. And as she said this, she slowly turned back into the fish and lay on the floor. The soldier lifted up the fish and held it tight to his chest and ran for all his might through the village, across the fields to the, to the great castle and to the pond, and to the stream that, that was fed by it. And he threw the fish back into the stream. And the blood washed away from the fish. And it swam and it swam up and down the stream, as if looking, as if looking, as if searching, as if searching. And the soldier, he did mend his ways. The fish, it is said, is still in that stream to this very day. You'll find it swimming in that stream in the middle of Ireland. You'll know it 
for the red mark that's on its side where the soldier cut it. He gave up eating fish. He said that it disagreed with him, although he didn't say how. And the soldier, he spent the rest of his life praying. He eventually became a hermit and moved up into a, into a cave just beyond the castle. And they say that he prayed for the soul of the white trout and its one true love. The White Trout, a story told for you by Simon Brooks. And, you know, Simon is, in addition to being a great storyteller, something of a musician as well, and that's uh, Simon playing as am- among those musicians in that music that you heard. The The music there is called uh, Waltz at the End of the World, and uh, it's fun to hear uh, some of our favorite tellers uh, playing some of our favorite music, too. Trent Horton listening to the story with me along with you, and Trent, what a great tale that is. Yeah, it's a really fun one. You know, that's from a collection of stories called A Tangle of Tales. And you can find more of uh, Simon Brooks's work by visiting his website, which is this. Ready for it? Diamond Scree. Diamond, like you know how to spell diamond. D-I-A-M-O-N-D. Scree. S-C-R-E-E. All one word. Diamondscree.com. Trent, thanks so much for bringing us that story today. Yeah, no problem. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Appleseed. A moment ago, you heard The White Trout, a story told for you by Simon Brooks. And there's a lot more coming up today. And because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a memory for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine. It's a memory about sailing, and it's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. You never know what's going to spark a memory. The other day, a social media acquaintance posted for some reason a link to a YouTube video of the first episode of an old TV show called The Voyage of the Mimi. 
from 1984, a little series about a ship setting sail off the coast of Massachusetts to study whales. I think my friend had rediscovered it and posted it because she had learned that it was the TV debut of Ben Affleck, who was 12. Anyway, it's a series I watched when I was a kid, along with countless American middle schoolers whose science and math teachers needed a little something to help them engage their classes. So remembering the voyage of the Mimi was in itself kind of a trip back for me. It was fun. But watching that ship from my childhood sail away from the Marblehead shore opened up another memory. Now, in this memory, I'm about nine years old. And there's a guy who works with my dad, who we learn, owns a sailboat. And my dad arranges for himself and my little brother and me to go sailing with this guy one afternoon after work. I mean, sailing. There was a sizable lake that abutted our community, but otherwise we lived in what was really effectively a desert. And the idea of sailing a sailboat out onto a body of water was just way outside our experience. Impossibly exotic. Dangerous, even. Though we're not at all frightened. After all, my dad will be with us. An amazing adventure this will be. And we're excited almost beyond power of speech. Well, the day comes. My mom drops my brother and me off at dad's work. And we're hopping up and down with anticipation as we climb into the car and follow the skipper out to the lake. And here's the thing. The sky, all blue and clear when we set out for the lake, is now a low ceiling of gray clouds by the time we get there. No rain, just a slate gray sky. And the skipper keeps looking up with kind of a worried face, and he tells us that if there's rain, we better not be out on the lake. And we're standing next to the dock where bobs our little craft, painted sky blue, a tiny thing into which we'll fit all four of us, but only just. It's really a little sailboat. From where we're standing, we can peek down into the cabin, and we think maybe one guy could fit down there. It's such a little thing. And the tiny boat sits there under the enormous sky, and we're hoping and praying because the thought of not getting to sail out on the lake is one we can't even bear. And after all, should there be any actual danger, well, we have our dad there. There's nothing from which he can't keep us safe, right? There's no rain now, not even much wind, no lightning or anything, not even way off on the horizon. So the skipper decides it's okay to set sail. Well, he straps us into life jackets and teaches us some of the parts of the little sailboat, tells us about the keel and the mast and the boom and the jib and the mainsail and the tiller, and soon we're scudding across the surface of the lake, and the dock is receding behind us, and it is everything. We're out on the water, the bow cutting through the surface of the lake, the rising and falling of the boat and the sound of the wind in the sails. It is all we had hoped it would be. And we're out for about 10 minutes when the fabric of my dad's windbreaker begins to whip against his shirt. And the skipper is looking at the sky again. And now there are raindrops and the smooth surface of the lake is whipping into peaks all around us. And everyone in the boat knows the score. Our sailing afternoon has come to an end. The skipper turns the little craft around and we head for the dock 
now bobbing distantly far ahead of us. And now things have changed. We're holding on to cleats and handholds and each other as the peaks of the waves grow even higher. The rain stings our faces as we crawl toward the dock. And now it looks not like a gentle rain in which we'll play it safe by heading in, but a surprise squall in which we're fighting for our very safety. And in that squall, I look up at my dad's face, and it's not calm. He's worried. He's watching the dock, hoping, but not entirely sure, that we'll make it back. Well, we do make it back. By the time lightning cracks across the sky, we are safely in the car, out of sight of the lake. Soon, we're safely in our beds. It's a while before I go to sleep, lying there awake. I realize it's a different world than it had been this morning. For now, after a storm at sea, I realize a thing that we all learn, I guess, that there are troubles in the world that are bigger than my father's ability to keep me safe. The world was bigger than it had ever been, and my father, just a tiny sailor like me. Well, we've sailed a lot together since then. I mean, I mean that figuratively. We actually haven't done much actual sailing since then. We've just sailed through a lot of life together, and sometimes he's helped me through the storm. Sometimes I've helped him. But both of us all the time, we're just a little more awestruck than we used to be by the journey itself. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. And there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. You're going to hear stories from, well, from Sheila Arnold and the Story Crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall. You're going to hear a Joseph Bruchak story, too. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books through terrific songs with which we interact, and the things that we see on screen, and certainly radio and podcasts, and exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love to do here on The Appleseed. I'm joined in the studio by, we've called him our podcast aficionado, Stuart Foster, one of our assistant producers. Stuart, Stuart it's great to have you. It's me. great to be here, Sam. You know, that kind of, I feel like it qualifies the amount of time that I spend listening to podcasts somehow. <laughs> it somehow vindicates it to me when you call me that. <laughs> That's right. Well, one of the things that we love to do is chat with you about some of your favorites. And we're going to talk a little bit about, this is a podcast that I have a particular interest in. Tell us a little bit about 20,000 Hertz. Yeah. So 20,000 Hertz is a podcast about the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. Wow. And so it is an audiophile's dream podcast, <laughs> so I can understand why you are interested in so it. So there might be an episode of 20,000 Hertz about, like, 
the boot sound on your Macintosh computer. Or exactly. Like In that. fact, you saying that there, I am a hundred percent sure there is an episode wow. about that, about where that Mac sound came from and who created it. Wow. Yeah. There's all sorts of fun stuff. There's stuff about the Jeopardy sounds. There's stuff about <laughs> sonic booms to like the very minuscule noises made in the ocean wow. by critters and things like that. Man. The one that I'm bringing to you today, though, is about the Voyager Golden Record. Do you know what the Voyager Golden Record is, Sam? For sure. Listen, yeah. I don't know much, but there is nothing that captures my imagination like the story of some of the things that we have done in space. Mm. And thinking about the Voyager spacecraft still going out into the, you know, beyond the beyond the bubble, right? Yeah. Beyond the reaches of the solar system. That is like a religious experience for me. Yeah, no, I f yeah. I feel that as well. And it's it's this it's such an interesting thought to think what will we represent humanity with, yeah. right? Because that's what this Voyager record was. Yeah, it was it's an a, attempt it's to... It's a record, like yeah. the record that you, like the records you have in your record uh -huh, cabinet. Exactly. All, filled with earth sounds. Mm -hmm. right? So if something, someone, something, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> found it, then they would understand kind of what is going on on earth, like yeah. what we think we are as yeah. humanity, which I find to just be a fascinating thing. Like if somebody asked me, oh, what do you think humanity is? Please put it onto a 20 minute long record. Right. <laughs> I would be like, right. I have no idea. It's so hard to say what that is. And right? it contains greetings in lots and lots of languages. It mm -hmm. contains music by Chuck Berry. It, it contains all kinds of representative Earth sounds, this golden record. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are, yeah, exactly what you said. In fact, that's the majority of the record. And then there are a couple of things that come with the record as well. It's this golden record that has been engraved on as well. So it's got like scientific engravings on it and mm -hmm. other things of that nature to show that humanity has progressed to understanding things like sound waves and yeah. things like, you know, light, that kind of stuff. An artifact designed to teach whoever, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever what whatever there is beyond, right? Yeah. About us, about Earth mm -hmm. and its and its folks and its creatures and its things. Yeah. And it's remarkable. I, you you I I have found uh uh, you, you can buy replica copies of the gold record on eBay. That's true, like that. yeah. <laughs> I've thought about doing Don't that. Don't think for one second that my finger hasn't hovered over the buy button or <laughs> stuff like that. Again, it just carries me away yeah. to think that this this visionary exercise of sending stuff out into the cosmos that you know, in a way that we may never see bear fruit, but maybe our children or children's children or you know, yeah. these, these seem like such visionary investments to me. Yeah, you say that. I mean, the the idea of it being captured and and uh, actually like seen by something has been basically written into every sci-fi sure, that exists right. ever, right? Like Star Trek is like, right, oh, what would yeah. happen if somebody actually found this thing? But and maybe it's audacious for me to say, but I kind of think that if we were to send one up today, if we were to send another golden record out today, yeah, that maybe some of the stuff on the apple seed would go onto it. And I, I kind of think that just simply because music and storytelling yeah. are really something very core to humanity, sure. right? And I yeah. think that 
maybe we should send up some Charlotte Blake Austin. That's maybe, right. Maybe we should send up some, I don't know, Tim Lowry to, right. to our alien An friends. Appleseed Project, yeah. Stuart. We could send up into outer space. <laughs> All we need is, well, never mind. I'll call SpaceX. <laughs> I'll call SpaceX. <laughs> and, of course, 20,000 Hertz uh, has an episode devoted to the Voyager Golden mm-hmm. Record and and all of the things that are on it and kind of how it came to be, how how the scientist Carl Sagan sort of headed up that uh, that effort to 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 build that sort of portrait, that snapshot of 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 life on Earth. Yeah, right? I would highly recommend it. And, you know, these episodes are like 30 minutes to an hour sometimes, um, but usually they're not that long. And they're really, really great little pieces of production. Uh, the uh, the boot sound from the Macintosh computer, we've talked about that. What about, like, the sound you make when you bang with a wrench on a guy line to a power? Yeah, stuff like the, that. The Star Wars make Star noise. Wars noises? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I There's... think that they've done one on that. I know that they've done a couple on, like, things like the bloop. I don't know if you know what the bloop <laughs> is, but that's a that's an underwater noise that a lot of people associated with a creature. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. At Right this second, I'm thinking about the little whistle that comes out of my mouth when I eat ice cream when I eat ice cream somehow I don't I don't know if this is common to humanity but when I put a bite of ice cream in my mouth I tend to kind of breathe in in just such a certain way that makes a little whistling sound and I don't know how I do it okay 20,000 Hertz <laughs> that is a challenge for you yeah that's not common to humanity by the way so. oh man <laughs> so sorry <laughs> well it's not going to keep me from eating ice cream uh, I can tell you that just because it's a unique experience for me well what a pleasure to chat a little bit about the podcast 20,000 Hertz it's episode Voyager's Golden Record with Stuart Foster Stuart thank you so much of course great to be here. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with our old friend Stuart Foster, and we'll try to have him back. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a Pam Farrow story, an ancient tale about a sign language debate. It's coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's so great to be with you during this hour of The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Pam Farrow. It's from a collection called Andalusian Trilogy, stories from Jews, Christians, and Muslims of medieval Spain. This is a story called Sign Language Debate, and we're happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. Once, there was a Spanish king who sad to say, hated Jews. And he wished to find a way to banish them from the town. He summoned the chief rabbi and said to him, I will have a debate with a Jew in the language of signs. I will allow 30 days to prepare. Choose someone from amongst your community. And if I win on the day of the debate, or if no one appears to take part in it, I shall then order all the Jews in the town banished and never to return upon penalty of death. If the Jew wins the debate, all may remain. So sure was this king of his debating skill. Well, for four weeks the people gathered and prayed and fasted, but no one felt 
able to accept the king's challenge. No one wanted the responsibility, the, the possibility of being the downfall of their people. No one stepped forward to represent the Jews in this mysterious sign language debate. Well, two days before the debate was to take place, the Jewish poultry dealer returned home. He had been traveling the countryside and now returned home, bringing chickens from the surrounding villages which he had purchased. He had not heard what was going on in the town, and he saw that the market was closed, and when he reached his home, he found his wife and children weeping and fasting with ashes on their face. What is the matter, my wife? And she told him of the king's decree, of this strange debate in sign language, and that no one had stepped forward to volunteer to represent the Jews, and if no one did, well, my husband, we shall all surely be turned out of our homes and banished from this town forever. Oh, said the poultry dealer, is that all? And he went directly to the rabbi, and he said, Rabbi, I have just heard, and I am telling you that I am ready to debate the king. The rabbi clasped his hands, shook his head, and said, May God help you and bring you success. On the appointed day, the poultry dealer met with the king before a great assembly of the people for a debate in sign language. First, the king, who was the one to begin, pointed one finger at the Jew. And the Jew replied by pointing two fingers at the king. The king gasped, straightened his shoulders, and then raised his open hand, fingers spread wide. The Jew answered by raising a clenched fist. The king straightened his robes, took two or three deep breaths, and then finally reached into his pocket and deliberately took out a moldy piece of cheese. The Jew reached in his pocket and took out an egg. The king staggered back, took a deep breath, and announced to the assembly, I cannot deny it. This Jew, this poultry dealer, has shown such deep wisdom in answering my questions, sign for sign, disputing my positions, that he has indeed won the debate. <laughs> and so, to the great joy 
and frankly, the puzzlement of the Jews, they were not turned out of their homes and banished. And indeed, they were treated with tolerance from that time on. But you need to know that as they parted and left the debate, the king's advisors and courtiers gathered around him and said, Your Majesty, what did you say to him? And what did he answer? Well, said the king, first, I pointed with one finger directly at him, meaning that there is one king in the land whose law all must obey, and you're looking at him. But he, he answered me with two fingers, reminding me that there are two kings, the earthly king and the heavenly king. Well then, I raised my open hand with fingers spread wide to show that the Jews are scattered far and wide throughout the world and are a people without hope, therefore. But he, he raised his closed fist to answer that instead, no, the Jews are bound together, and together they are strong. So finally, said the king, I showed him some moldy cheese to show that the Jews are an old people with an old religion who should all just die off. But he responded by showing me an egg, telling me that no, Know that the Jewish people instead are ever new and a source of life. What answer could I have to that? Well, meanwhile, <laughs> the Jewish poultry dealer's friends and family gathered around him and asked him to explain how he had done it. What had they said? How had he bested the king in the debate? Well said the poultry dealer. The king pointed at me with one finger to say he was going to poke out my eye. So I pointed back with two to tell him that I would take out both of his. <laughs> then he threatened to slap me with his open hand, so I showed him what I would do with my fist. And after that, and here, the poultry dealer paused, looked around at his friends and family gathered nearby, gave them a slow wink, and said, After that, he took out his lunch, so I took out mine. Pam Farrow with Sign Language Debate here on The Appleseed. Earlier in the hour, we uh, promised you a story about becoming a bear. Well, this is that story. It's a Bill Greenfield story told for you by the prolific storyteller and writer Joseph Bruchak. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. How Bill Greenfield Moved In with the Bears now, Bill Greenfield wasn't usually one to run from a bear, 
That big old bear hadn't really spooked Bill, just startled him so much Bill didn't have the time to let his feet know he wasn't really scared. As Bill later explained, if he'd just had a moment, he could have reasoned with that bear. For Bill Greenfield, you see, was one of the few people in the Adirondacks who could speak bear talk. As a matter of fact, Bill was more or less adopted by the bears, and this is how it come to be. Many years ago, when Bill Greenfield was a young man, he was part of a crew that was logging deep in the woods up in Township 19. Bill always enjoyed getting off and working by himself, and he'd even built a little shanty of his own a mile or so from the main bunkhouse. All it had in it was a stove and a cot with a big warm bearskin robe, so that even when the winds blew cold, Bill could wrap up in it and be warm as a flea in a dog's ear. He'd head back to the main camp whenever he was low on food or in need of a little company, of course. This one particular day, Bill had been working skinning hemlock logs with a spud. As everyone knows, hemlock floats like a rock unless the bark is off it. But spudding a hemlock is messy, dirty work, and there was an overly adequate supply of mosquitoes that particular sunny day, and so Bill kept swatting them while he was skinning off the bark, and by the time the day was done, he was pretty well gunked up with pitch from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He was as sticky and black as a turkey buzzard's neck. He'd worked a lot longer than he'd intended to, and he was just about as wore out as the soles of a 20-year-old pair of boots. He was so tired, in fact, he didn't bother to wash up or have a bite to eat or even shut the door when he got back to his little shanty. He just collapsed onto that cot, rolled the bearskin robe around him, and went fast asleep. He was so tired he slept two days straight, and whilst he was asleep, the raccoons crept in through that open door and stole every bit of Bill's grub. When Bill woke up, he was as hungry as he didn't know what, but when he went to his little larder, he found all the food was gone. His stomach was growling now so loud it scared the birds out of the trees for half a mile around. And Bill was feeling desperate for food. So he headed out right for the main camp a mile away, animals taking flight in all directions as the sound of his growling stomach went with him through the woods. Bill come up over the little rise above the camp and started down the hill toward the cookhouse at a good clip, but as he done so, he saw that things were strange. All the folks in the camp were staring up the hill, and as he got closer, they started to hightail it in all directions. Bear! Someone was shouting. Bear in the camp! Good Lord! Another person yelled. That's the ugliest bear I ever seen! Bill looked behind him, but he was danged if he could see any bear. He turned back and was about to yell back at the others, What bear? when a shotgun blast tore up the ground right in front of him. Bill jumped, and the next blast hit a tree right where he'd been standing. Why in tarnation someone was shooting in his direction, Bill couldn't begin to guess, but he figured he'd better make himself scarce in the meantime. He turned around and started to run for it. Shot spattering all around him, folks had gone hog wild. He ran so low to the ground he was right on all fours. He ran up over the ridge and kept on going, ran right over the top of Porter Mountain and down into the valley on the other side. When he stopped running, he'd gone a good ten miles as the crow flies. Bill flopped down, trying to make head or tails of what had been happening back in camp. He reached up to wipe the sweat off his forehead, wondering why he was so hot. After all, he hadn't put his coat on when he left his little shanty. But as soon as he saw what was stuck to his arm, and for that matter to the rest of him, he realized he was wearing something after all. He stood up and took a good look at himself. 
He'd had so much pitch on him after spudding out those trees that bearskin robe of his had stuck to him. And right away, he figured out just who that ugly bear was that the other loggers had got so head up about. It was him. Well, Bill tried to peel that skin off, but by now the pitch had set, and it was stuck so tight there was no way short of skinning himself he could get free. Bill was in a pickle. His one hope was to get some kerosene to dissolve that pitch. But the only kerosene for 50 miles around was back in the camp, and there was no way Bill was about to go into camp looking like a bear. Bill thought a bit, and then decided the best thing he could do would be to wait till dark and things was quieted down. Then he could sneak in and steal some kerosene. And then, by thunder, when he'd got out of that bear robe, he'd have a bone to pick with that logger who'd made that remark about him being the ugliest bear he'd ever seen. It was still a while till dark, though, so Bill just curled up to take another nap. He wasn't sure how long he slept, but he woke up real fast when he felt a big tongue licking his face. He opened his eyes to see that tongue was connected to the mouth of a bear that was standing right over him. He looked around and saw three more bears. Bill froze, sure they were about to tear him apart. Instead, though, they come up and all started licking and nuzzling him and making all kinds of noises that Bill took to be sounds of welcome was like they were greeting an old friend. Figuring, as the old saying goes, that it is better to lick them and to join them, Bill started to do the same. Those bears seemed just as happy as clams. Next thing he knew, one of them come up with a big comb of honey in its mouth and dropped it right in front of Bill. Bill was about starved and he gobbled that honey right up. That seemed to please those bears and they brought Bill some more to eat. Before long, Bill had to admit to himself that he was feeling right to home. Then those bears started off up the trail and they nudged Bill along with them. Well, that was the last of human habitation that Bill was to see for the next few seasons. Maybe it was just that Bill had grown used to life in the log camps, but he was to say in later years that living among the bears was a darn sight more civilized than human companionship. Not only were the bears more generous than most humans, they were a dang sight more interesting to talk to and you'd sure as blazes never see one bear try to deceive another. Bill got to like those bears so well he started pointing out the traps that were set for him and helping them avoid human hunters. And when the winter come, he hibernated right along with those bears. And the next spring and summer he went along berry picking and fishing in the streams. Bill probably would have been among those bears still if that bear robe hadn't started to wear away. Now Bill held it together as best he could, trying to keep it fastened onto him with vines and such, but one morning he woke up and found the bears was gone. He stood up when the little tatters of bear skin fell off of him and he knew he was going to have to go back to being a human again. Ever after that, Bill Greenfield never would abide anyone even talking about hunting a bear around him. It got too so that folks would hide their bear skin rugs whenever they saw Bill Greenfield coming. They knew that once they turned their backs on him, Bill would have that bearskin up around his shoulders and be heading off into the woods. And whether he would be trying to convince the bears to let him join up with him again or just was going to give that skin a decent burial, no one ever knew.
Joseph Bruchak with a Bill Greenfield story, how Bill Greenfield moved in with bears. Bill Greenfield, of course, the classic tall tale character from the Adirondack Mountains. We promised you a story about becoming a bear, and we also promised you a story about becoming a worm. This is that story. It's from Sheila Arnold, a tale about a boy who likes to eat worms and is warned that if he doesn't stop, he's going to turn into a worm himself. Here's the story. It's called The Worm Story from Sheila Arnold on the Appleseed. When Miss Lord was teaching third grade, she once had a student named Adam. Adam was a nice kid, but he had an unusual habit. He loved to eat worms. Every afternoon, Adam would go in his backyard, dig up worms and sing, I like big worms, I like fat worms. I like skinny worms, particularly dead worms. He would come to school with worms and Miss Lord would say, Adam, if you keep eating worms, you're going to turn into a worm. But every day, Adam would come to school with his worm lunch. The lunch would be a sandwich, worms between whole grain bread with a touch of mayo. Fruit, usually an apple with a worm in the middle. Worm juice and for dessert, Chocolate pudding with chocolate sandwich cookies on top and worms crawling through it. After Adam made his lunch, Miss Lord would always say, Adam, if you keep eating worms, you're going to turn into a worm. But Adam didn't care. He just kept eating and digging for worms. I like big worms. I like fat worms. I like skinny worms, particularly dead worms. I like big worms. I like fat worms. I like skinny worms, particularly dead worms. One day, Adam didn't come to school. As a matter of fact, Adam didn't come to school for several days. Miss Lord asked the other students if they had seen Adam, but they had not. She asked the students' parents if they had seen Adam or his family, and they had not. Miss Lord tried to call and see Adam herself, but she couldn't find him. Then after many days, Adam came in the classroom, slithering along the ground, and he crawled up to Miss Lord, who was writing on the chalkboard. Miss Lord, asked Adam. Miss Lord recognized the voice, looked around, finally looked down, and with just a slight surprise, said, yes, Adam. Miss Lord, I'm a worm. I can see that. And Miss Lord went back to writing on the board. Miss Lord, yes, Adam. I'm a worm. I can see that. I did warn you. Miss Lord, yes, Adam. What am I going to do? And Miss Lord set down her chalk, turned to Adam, bent down, looked him straight in his worm face, and ate him. <laughs> <laughs> a silly story from Sheila Arnold called The Worm Story. A cautionary tale, perhaps? Well, who knows? If you feel cautioned by it, then maybe it was for you. We've got a story now called uh, Beeping Sluty. That's a spoonerism, of course, for sleeping beauty. A spoonerism where you change the first syllables of words around to make, well, a funny story in this case. From the story crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall, here's Beeping Sluty, and we'll wrap up with this story today on the Appleseed. 
Once upon a time, a queen and king lived in a can-see castle. They had everything a queen and king could ever want, except for a bittle lady. How they longed for a bittle lady. How they wished for a bittle lady. And one fine day, they were blessed with a bittle lady. It was such a magnificent event that the queen and king decided to throw a pig barty. They invited many guests, but the last guest was very long, and they forgot to send an invitation to the 13th fairy. And the 13th fairy got very angry. On the day of the pig barty, the 13th fairy was so angry that she came uninvited and turned herself into a wasty niche. And that wasty niche put a sparable tell on the bittle lady. She said that when the bittle lady became a wong yuman on her eighteenth earth day, she would frick her pinger on a winning spiel and fall into a sleep dumber for hun yundred weirs. The queen and king immediately ordered every winning spiel in the queendom to be destroyed in a boring ronfire. And every winning spiel was destroyed, all except for one. In the teen mime, the biddle lady grew up to be a wonderful gittle-lurl. Everyone loved her. Stories were spread war and bide about her. It was said that she had a beautiful bart and beautiful bear. And when that gittle-lurl grew into a wung yuman, her beautiful bart and bear grew even more beautiful. But on that wung yuman's eighteenth earth day, she was overcome with desire to explore the Cansey Fassle. She found a tidden hower with sticky squares. She climbed those sticky squares to the toppy tip where she found a rusty doom. Sitting in the middle of the rusty doom was the only winning spiel left in the queendom. And sitting at that winning spiel was the wasty niche. The Wong Yuman's curiosity led her to touch it and she fricked her finger on the winning spiel and fell into a sleep dumber. When the Wung Yuman with the beautiful Bart and Bear fell asleep, the clocks on the wall topped sticking. The mice in the corner knopped stibbling. And the book in the cakery stopped booking. Everyone in the Cansey Fassel, including the Queen and Keen, fell into a sleep dumber. And as everyone slept, a thedge of horns grew around the Cansey Fassel, and legend of the sleeping Wong Yuman with the beautiful Bart and Bear spread throughout the queendom. In no time at all, everyone was saying that she was a regular beeping slooty. Prenia Mince came along to try to break through the thedge of horns and awaken her, but the thedge was thick. And those horns hurt. No one succeeded. So, that Wong Yuman with the beautiful Bart and Bear, that regular beeping slooty, slept for nearly hundred weirs. And then, a prucky lintz came along. In no time at all, he cut through the thedge of horns. He found the tidden hower and climbed the steaky squares all the way to the toppy tip, where there was the rusty doom. <laughs>
which had grown even rustier over hundred weirs. And in a sleep dumber on the floor was the Wong Yuman with the beautiful Bart and Bear that he'd heard stories about ever since he was a bit of laby, that regular beeping slooty. He was overcome by her slooty and fell leaply in dove. He bent down and gave her a big cat fist. And then that regular beeping slooty. Well, she may have been a slooty, but she wasn't beeping now. Ipened her o's and at sup. When beeping slooty at sup, the clocks on the wall tarted sticking. The mice in the corner narted stibbling. And the book in the cakery started booking. But was he ever in a masty nude? Because over hundred weirs, the kitchen had gotten healy rot. Then everyone in the cansy facile, including the queen and keen, woke up. Now, as is typical of royalty in Terry Fails, the Queen and Keen threw another pig barty to celebrate, and the Prucky Lintz asked Beeping Slooty to be his lovely life. But that's another pig barty and another Terry fail entirely. As for this one, they all lived happily ever after. And the moral of the story is... The next time you throw a pig barty and have a very long lest gist, make sure that you trouble deck the lest gist, lest you too forget to invite a very gowerful pest. Beeping Slooty, a story told for you by the Story Crafters. It's been great to share all these tales with you today. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. And I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. <laughs>